you have a Bible with you today, open up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 11. And if you're taking notes today, notice that we also have uh, some, uh, some uh, outlines there for you to fill in and uh, fill it, follow along as we look at John chapter 11. We've been in the Gospel of John for a few years. We've been in chapter 11. This is our third sermon about the testimony about how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so today's sermon title is, I Am the Resurrection and the life. This morning we'll be looking at John chapter 11, verses 17 down to verse 27. The Apostle John writes the following. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we pray that you would give us insight into your word in this incredible story about how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead would impact us today. It would change us today. It would allow us to see the power and the glory of Christ being the resurrection and the life. Use this to change us, and to, change, and to shape us more into the image of Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. In his book entitled The Darkness and the Dawn, Charles Swindoll reminds us that in 17th century London, there was a plague that people of the time came to call the Black Death. In May of 1664, this plague claimed the first few victims, and on the following year, 600 had died. By the next month of 1665, the number had risen from 600 to 6,000. One month later, the number was 17,000, and in August of that same summer, 31,000 people had died. People responded by fleeing the city like rats fleeing from a sinking ship. And in this way, the disease spread all across Europe. By the time it was all over, about 70,000 people had died. This great plague was called the Black Death for two reasons. The first was that the victims were marked with a large black splotch, uh, sometimes in several different shapes and sizes across their body. The second was because of the darkness of ignorance surrounding the cause of the disease. You see, many people of that day thought that the plague was caused by the soot in the polluted air that smothered the city of London. 
Today, of course, we know that it was not carried by the air, but, but rather by fleas that were uh, traveling on the backs of these rats and rodents that were running around the city. But in those days, people believed that it was caused by pollution, and so the doctors devised a strange ritual to bring about a possible cure. They would take the people stricken with this disease outside to a rose garden. And there, the patients would form a circle around the roses holding hands. Then, they would begin to sing uh, a song, or rather state a ritual, about how there were, the, this song, Ring Around the Roses, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. That song was actually sang not necessarily by the ones holding the hands around the circle, but by the man who carried the, the bodies to their death. There was this chant that, uh, that gave birth to this rhyme that we now know as that nursery rhyme. Pretty interesting, isn't it, that some nursery rhyme, innocent as it may be when we sing it today, would begin in such a terrible way. And yet the truth is, that that one line from that nursery rhyme, we all fall down, is still as true today as it ever was in the 17th century. We do all fall down. Each one of us will succumb to the inescapable plague known as death. Now listen to what God says in Genesis 3:19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Ecclesiastes 3.2 says, there's a time to be born and a time to die. Romans 5.12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so what we're seeing is that though sin, uh, it was through sin that death entered the world. And like an uncontainable plague, it is now spread to all men because all have sinned. And instead of just claiming the lives of 70,000 people over the course of one year, it claims the life of all. All of us have a mortal disease. We all, as the rhyme says, fall down. There's no amount of rose garden or smelling the fresh air that can change you. You must have Christ. You must be born again in Christ to be changed. And we learn that from Genesis to Revelation. We're told that the plague of death and the sad fact that all humanity has that disease that causes death is, is a very true reality. And it's unpleasant to think about. It's unpleasant to talk about death. It was Billy Graham who said that we live in a death-denying society. Right? We, we try to put off death as long as we can. Right? We spend billions of dollars every year to, to, buy, to buy and purchase creams and lotions that promise to slow down the aging process. Right? We, we work out regularly in order to, uh, to keep healthy and have a prolonged life. Uh, we even deny our mortality with jokes like Woody Allen who said, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Kind of wraps up how we feel about death, right? We know it's a reality. We can't run from it, but we don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to be there when it happens, right? Why, why are we like this? Why is death something that we avoid like the plague? Well, I think we act this way because we fear death. We run from it just like those panicking people ran from London. Uh, the, the main reason that we fear death is because it is an unknown, we can't study death or observe death or try, to try it on and see how it feels. 
Uh, No, from our earthly perspective, we can't possibly understand all that we would want to understand about death. Well, in our text this morning, as we even just read a few moments ago, Jesus has a lot to say about death. He has a lot to say about this enemy that we all face. In fact, in his response to the death of a friend, our Lord uttered one of his I am statements, a statement that produces within us a little bit of hope when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? It reminds us that Jesus has conquered death, that Jesus has overcome death, that death is not the end, but the beginning of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ today, you don't have to fear death any longer because Jesus is alive, and he carries with him all of those who are alive in him. In Christ, you will live forever. So whether it be a black plague that gets you, or cancer that gets you, or a tragedy that gets you, you, if you're in Christ, will live forever. This is an encouraging passage this morning as we look at these four headings that will show us a little bit more about the true statement that Jesus gives, I am the resurrection and the life. And so let's look at these four headings that again show us about the beauty of Jesus Christ being the resurrection and the life. And first heading is this, number one, the difficulty of the situation. And your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says the significance of being dead for four days. Now, you know this in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for days. This verse tells us that by the time Jesus arrived, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Let's follow the timeline of Lazarus's illness and death. While this may not be the exact right chronology, let me do my best to tell you what it seems to be that we're facing that happened on days one through four. You remember day one, we're told in verse three, Mary and Martha, the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So on the first day, Mary and Martha said, go tell Jesus, let him know that it's him whom Jesus loves. And we spent a little time talking about the importance of understanding how much Jesus loves us. That was day one. The message goes forth. On days two and three are recorded in verse six. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And we spent a little time last week talking about sometimes that's just what Jesus does. You say a prayer, you're in a desperate need of his help, and he decides to wait And it might be two more days, it might be two more weeks, it might be two more years, it might be two more decades, but rest assured, Jesus knows what he's doing. And in the in-between time is where your faith will be tested. And in the in-between time is where we'll see the measure of a man and the measure of a woman to say, I've prayed my prayer to God and I'm going to trust him to do what he wants as he wants to. And so day one, the message went forth. Day two and three, Jesus remains for those two more days. And then day four, we're told in verses 15, uh, 14 and 15, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Jesus is always reminding us while we're waiting, there's benefit. The benefit is that your faith is growing. Christ is being glorified and he wants to show you something new about himself that you've never known. And so what we're seeing here is on day four, that uh, if this chronology is correct, then it's possible, think about it, it's possible that Lazarus died on day one. If they sent the message on day one, 
and he's already been in the tomb for four days, then it's possible that even before Jesus got the earthly message from the messenger, Lazarus had already died. This means that Lazarus may have already even been dead for all of those four days until Jesus arrives. That's an interesting thought. We can't prove it. There could be some other verses in here that, uh, that the author didn't seem to, to, to include, but it seems likely that what I'm saying is the way that it happened. Let me tell you what we do know for a fact. We do know that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, right? The, the Jews did not practice embalming to preserve the body uh, and they were known to bury the body on the same day that the death took place. Since Israel was a warm climate, decomposition begins quickly, and therefore it is best to get the person in the ground or in the grave right away. We see this in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira both die for lying to the Holy Spirit. Remember, it says to Sapphira, they, they, those are the footsteps of him, the, them that buried your husband. They're coming back for you because they buried him right away. They would bury them on the same day. Uh, I read an article this week written by Dr. Arpad Voss, who is a forensic anthropologist. And Dr. Voss described how fast the body decomposes after a person dies. He stated that human decomposition begins approximately four minutes after death has occurred. So that means after your heart stops beating, you stop breathing, four minutes, the body starts to deteriorate. The onset is governed by a process called autolysis or self-digestion. As the cells of the body are deprived of oxygen, carbon dioxide in the blood increases, pH decreases, and waste accumulate, which in return poison the cells. At the same time, Cellular enzymes begin to dissolve the cells from the inside out, eventually causing them to rupture. The leaked enzymes and cell content began producing many toxic gases. The sulfur-containing compounds that bacteria release also cause skin discoloration. And due to the gases, the human body can enlarge in size and appear to be bloated. In addition, insect activity can be present. And all the microorganisms and bacteria produce an extremely unpleasant odor known as purification. Putrefication, excuse me. These odors often alert others that a person has died. How many of you are glad you came to church this morning? You're just like, man, I'm glad I'm here. Talk to me about putrefication, Tyson. Talk to me about it. All right, this is what happens, right? This is what happens to the body when you die. Why am I telling you this? Because what we see in America is people die, nice little death. They put them in a casket. They embalm them. They put makeup on them, put them in a nice suit or a nice dress, and they look just fine four days later. Not too shabby. But in the ancient world, to be dead for four days was hideous. As the decomposition would set in, it would blow your mind to see how much death would happen in a body four days later. And you know this from roadkill. Are you seeing dogs and cats and possums on the side of the road? And you know it stinks. We just pulled a rat out of my yard just this last week. I'm like, what is that smell? And sure enough, you got to hunt it until you find it. You get a shovel or a rake or something because you don't even want to touch that thing because it smells so 
nasty. That's why we read in verse 39 when Jesus wanted to remove Lazarus' stone. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Remember how the old King James, King James Version of the Bible said here, Lord, by now he stinketh. That's what's going on here, right? There was this crazy smell. He stunk. He would have been dead for four days. There's also another thing going on here, significant about why four days. In addition to the biology that was happening here, there's also, according to Jewish, uh, to Jewish rabbinic uh, belief, rabbinic belief, excuse me, when a person dies, some of the Jews were teaching that the soul would hover over the body for the first three days. Apparently, they believe that the spirit seeks to re-enter the body until the appearance of the corpse makes it abundantly clear that there is quite a bit of decomposition going on, and then the spirit departs. So Jesus, I believe, waited on purpose to come to Bethany until Lazarus is both biologically decomposing and theologically beyond the three-day window of where the spirit, according to the Jewish superstition, could enter back into the body. The other resurrections that Jesus performed, by the way, all happened on the same day. If you were to look at Luke chapter 7, about how Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son, and also in Luke chapter 8, how Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, both were raised from the dead on the same day. So... This story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead goes beyond the norm. It goes beyond what was feasible. It goes beyond what was comprehensible. It goes beyond what it, what it might have been uh, logical. It goes beyond what anything that anybody would have ever or expected or imagined Jesus to do. May this story open our eyes. May it lift your horizon on the capability and the power of God. May it strengthen your faith today. May it help you pray more miraculously like Paul taught us in Ephesians 3.20, now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we seek or think according to the power that is at work in us. May this story remind us to pray a little bit more like that. Let me ask you today, dear friend, what is your situation today? What doubt is there blocking your view of a mighty, powerful God. He is the resurrection and the life. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He can do all things. No wonder Jesus said in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, not only this, but in verse 18 and 19, I want you to see the, the consolation offered by the friends of the family. Verse 18 and 19, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Well, as you already know, Bethany was only a short walk from Jerusalem, and Jesus had been to Bethany many times, Matthew 21, 17, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Matthew 26, 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, Mark 11, 1, now when, the day drew near to, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. John chapter 12, verse 1, six days before Passover, Jesus 
Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. It's real close to Jerusalem, a short walk away. The proximity of Bethany to Jerusalem made it easy for many people to come and pay their condolences. In our culture, the body typically isn't buried for several days. When a family and friends hear about one who's passed away, they come and they sit with the family and the loved ones in their home or at the church or at the funeral home for a few days. The family gathers. There's a lot of commotion going on as they're trying to plan the memorial service or the funeral. Lots of decisions to be made. Lots of time to talk and interact with people. And then after the funeral and after the burial and maybe a short luncheon, usually people head their way, and the mourning is essentially over. In the Jewish culture, men and women would walk separately in the funeral procession, and after the burial, the women would return to the house to begin the 30-day mourning period. There would be lots of weeping and mourning and wailing as a public display of honor for the family and for the deceased. The first seven days of mourning were the most intense, and many of the mourners would remain with the family for that entire week. And this might explain why the Jews who came to console Mary and Martha were still there with them four days later after the burial. Well, can I just say to you this morning that the only way that you will ever be comforted is by looking to Jesus. Thankful that these friends came. I'm thankful for you that you come to each other's needs in a time of crisis, but at the end of the day, only Jesus can comfort your soul. Yes, time can help. Yes, family and friends can console. Yes, taking some time to mourn is appropriate. Yes, Focusing on helping others can redirect your energy and your focus. But at the end of the day, we need to be comforted by the Lord. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, an incredible passage on the comfort of Christ. Just so you can just be reminded of what we're talking about here. This is where we need to go in times of mourning is to be reminded maybe, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and following, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also will share in our comfort. Do you notice the repeated word comfort 10 times in those five verses? And the comfort that Paul is talking about here is the comfort of Christ. This word comfort can mean, quote, lifting another's spirits, but it can also mean, quote, the act of emboldening another's in belief. In other words, comfort isn't just sitting with somebody, though that is comforting. 
Comfort isn't just bringing a meal, though that's also a blessing. Comfort, according to what the original word means, is emboldening another in their belief. In other words, the comfort Christ gives is that which lifts our spirits and our hearts to him, to believe in him, to trust in him, to be saved by him. We mourn, but not as those who have no hope. Because we have hope in a risen Christ. We have hope in our salvation. The comfort is saving grace and sustaining grace. It's trusting Him. It's having faith that God is in control of whatever's going on. And He's working it for His glory and my good. The comfort that Jesus gives is just that it's Himself with you. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that when you show up, you start preaching comfort. Yes, you sit with them, and yes, you talk with them, and I'm just saying somewhere in there is just a gentle reminder of the goodness and the greatness of God. There's a, there's a way to help somebody just fix their mind on Jesus. There's a way that you can help somebody think upon what is true. There's a way that you can help somebody surrender their emotions to the Lord. I'm not saying it's wrong to have emotion. We should, right? Life is difficult, but we want to make sure that we hope in Jesus. So let me ask you this morning, are you bringing your problems to him? Are you being comforted by his love for you? Are you fixing your mind on things above instead of on things below? Are you finding your comfort in Christ? The second heading I want you to see today is this, the authenticity of Martha's faith. Your next blank, the personalities of Martha and Mary. Look at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she sent him and met with him. She went to him. She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. This activity of Martha going out to meet with Jesus sounds characteristic of what we know Martha to have been like. Of the two sisters, she seems to be the more busy, active, and task oriented one. We read about that in Luke 10 that tells us on how that occasion it was Martha who welcomed Jesus into her house. The text said that she was, however, distracted with much serving and having gone up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. So she's task oriented. She's about getting it done. She's a little bit more type A maybe. And then we see Mary, on the other hand, has been more quiet, melancholy, pensive, contemplative. She was the one who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Here in John 11, notice how Martha comes out to meet Jesus and talk with him, but where's Mary? She was content to remain seated in the house. And part of those differences between Mary and Martha should remind us of the differences in us all. It's not like Mary was right and Martha was wrong or vice versa. They're just saying there's a different ways people respond. And if sisters in the same family could vary to such a great degree, how much more do we all reflect the differences that God has created in humanity? I mean, that's how God made us. He made us all different. He made us so very different. And I like that. I like the fact that he made us so different that we're like the colors changing in a kaleidoscope tube. Each one of us with our own DNA. 
Each one of us with our own fingerprint. Each one of us with our own particular interest and emotional makeup. I'm saying here, it's a beautiful thing to think of God as a great painter with his palette of colors before him to paint you however he wanted. He's the master creator. He's a master sculptor. He's the great artist. He sees fit to design us physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, with the gifts that he desires to give us. This, this is 1 Corinthians 12. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, varieties of service, but the same Lord, varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And so whether you think of yourself as being more of a doer or more of a thinker, whether you're more of an extrovert or more of an introvert, whether you're more type A or that other type, is it B or C? I never hear it. We always hear it. Type A, type A, type A. Well, who's type B? You know, maybe some of us are like that, right? Make sure, the point is that make sure you do all things in the power of the Spirit for the glory of our great God. That's the point. We do all things well, and I want you to see what I think Martha actually does well here as you look at your next blank, the reality and the reliance of Martha's belief. The reality and reliance of Martha's belief. Look at verses 21 and 22. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, most of the time, we give Martha a bad rap here, and possibly that's correct. Many of the commentaries say that Martha is complaining, but other commentaries say that Martha is paying Jesus a compliment. It is literally impossible to tell exactly what she meant because we can't hear how she said this. If she was complaining, then she was obviously saying something to the effect of, Jesus, where were you? I sent for you like four days ago. Couldn't you have gotten here a little bit sooner? Again, we don't know for sure, but if she did feel like that, I could certainly relate. Can't you? I mean, we talked about being patient and waiting on the Lord and trusting in his wisdom to do what he does, but it's still hard sometimes. It's still difficult because we're still human, and sometimes our view gets a little muddy. It, this is like what the Israelites did when they complained. I mean, they just got out of 430 years of bondage. They were set free from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They get out there into the wilderness. And then all of a sudden we read in Exodus 16:3, the people of Israel said to them, would that we had have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. In other words, I wish we'd have just stayed in Egypt. Why? Because when we were there, we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us, talking to Moses, out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then, you know, the manna came, later the quail came and all of that. But the idea here is they're just complaining. That's human nature. And at times like that, we need to be reminded of Philippians 2.4, do all things without grumbling or disputing, without grumbling or complaining, some versions say. And so some would say that Martha, uh, she's complaining here. Others would say, however, that Martha is not complaining, but she's praising Christ. If you were here, I know that you would have healed my brother. This would have been in a positive sense. I wish you could have been here, Lord, because I know if you would have been here, you would have made all the difference. With you, things would have turned out differently. She was possibly affirming her faith 
because you remember Lazarus may have died shortly after they sent the message. There's no way maybe Jesus could have even gotten there apart from obviously his miraculous work that he could have done, but maybe she's more saying, hey, Jesus, if you'd have been here, I, I know you would have healed him. It would have gone well. Mark 7:37 says they were all astonished beyond measure whenever Jesus healed the deaf man and opened his ears. You know, maybe Martha's thinking, we would have had a time like that. We would have just been like amazed that you would have healed our brother on the spot. Either way, whether she's complaining or praising, I love the fact that Martha is real, but she is also really showing the authenticity of her faith when she says in verse 22, but even now. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Like here we see that Martha shows her resolve. She shows her resilience. She shows her reliance on the Lord. What has happened has happened. It's in the past. Lazarus has died. But even now, can you say that in your life? In the midst of your trial, Lord, I lost my job. I lost out on an opportunity. I've made a mess of the situation. Lord, this seems to be a total wreck. But even now, even right here, right now, on this day, in this moment, Lord, I know that you could intervene in my circumstance, in my situation, even now, Martha says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. What faith that is. I mean, do you know that whatever Jesus asks, he will receive. Sometimes we struggle with our own prayers, and sometimes we even solicit the prayers of a righteous man, knowing that they availeth much. But sometimes in our own prayers, we're thinking, am I praying it right? Am I praying it in his name? Am I righteous enough? Does God even want me to have that? But when Jesus prays, surely God will give it to him. God never tells Jesus no. Jesus' prayers are always answered. Jesus prayed to God to multiply the loaves and fishes, and he did. Jesus prayed to God before he walked on the water, and he walked on water. Jesus prayed for the needs of others, and they were answered. Jesus prayed at the Last Supper and in the Garden of Gethsemane and then on the cross in every single prayer Jesus ever prayed, God answered. And so what we're seeing here in Martha is the reality of the struggle and the reliance of a faithful follower of Jesus. And I'm asking you this morning, will you be the same? Will you bring your concern? Will you bring your heart to Jesus? Will you be honest with the Lord in your prayers, but honor him as Lord of all? Pour out your heart to him when it hurts, but put your hope in him for healing. Be real, but be reliant. Isn't that what we see throughout the Psalms? Here's how I feel, Lord. This is me running from my enemies, Lord. But when I came into the house of the Lord, when I set my eyes on the Lord, then I knew that things would work out. That's part of what Martha's saying. This is a mess, Lord, but I know. Even now, I know you're here. And I know you're up to something good. And so I appreciate the fact here we also see in those next couple of verses, 23 and 24, we see the confidence of the final resurrection. 23 and 24, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Jesus makes it clear to Martha, your brother will rise again. This word rise means to raise up by bringing back to life. 
It means to cause to stand or be erect. It means to come back from, uh, to life from the dead. And so Jesus means all of these things, and Martha believes him. She knows that Lazarus will face a future resurrection. And how could she know that? I mean, we haven't, ha- she didn't have the New Testament yet. It was being written. Right? So how did she know about this future resurrection? Maybe she leaned on Job 19, 25 to 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Or maybe she knew Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption or decay. Or maybe she knew Daniel 12 too, that talks about a future and final resurrection with great certainty, Daniel 12 too, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Do you know what we're seeing here? We're saying this, Martha had good theology. Martha knew there was a future resurrection. Martha was confident in a future in heaven. But do you know what Martha did not have? She did not have a good application. Good theology without spirit-directed application gets you only halfway there. She did not have good application, and to get the application she needed, she needed to hear what Christ was saying and not what she thought she already knew about a future resurrection. She already thought, oh yeah, Lord, I know, I know, I know what's going to happen. He's like, no, no, you're not hearing what I'm saying. To get the application right, we need to say, show me, Lord, what you mean. Help me understand the text accurately and then help apply this by your spirit in my heart today so that I could better walk by faith and trust that God will continue to reveal himself to me more and more as he sees fit. Have confidence in God. Keep studying and reading his word. Keep walking by faith and keep asking him to show you how you can better understand, better apply, and better follow him. And now that we've seen the the difficulty of the situation, the authenticity of Martha's faith, this bleeds right into the profundity of Jesus' I am statement because Jesus is going to have to correct Martha to say, look, you don't fully get it. I know you got good theology, but I got to tell you something brand new. And what I got to say to you is what he says in verse 25. And your next blank here says what? You must come to the person of Jesus Christ. You must come to the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 25, this is where Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth of the I am statements here in the Gospel of John. Jesus has already said, I am the bread of life. Jesus has already said, I am the light of the world. Jesus has already said, I am the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. And now he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. In each one of these statements, Jesus purposely uses the words ego eimi, which for you Greek students, you know that's emphatic in the original language for saying I am. 
Make no doubt about it, Jesus is making himself out to be God. Jesus is using the same reference to himself that Yahweh used about himself at the burning bush experience that Moses had when he said, who shall I tell him sent me? And God, Yahweh, answered by saying, I am who I am. And Jesus had already said here in John that before Abraham was, I am. Jesus has already said, I and the Father are one. So Jesus is telling Martha in this context that the resurrection is more than an event that will happen in the future. It's a person who's with you right here, right now. The resurrection is more than a future occurrence. It is a present reality. The resurrection is not only a spiritual concept, it is going to be applied at this very moment when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead on that very day. It's a present faith we have with the Lord. There's a future promise in a future home, but there's a present reality to Jesus. Sometimes we're praying and we're asking and we're thinking, and he's like, I'm right here. Here I am. I am the resurrection and the life. And when Jesus uses that word resurrection, it means to be raised up from the dead. And here Jesus takes this promise out of the good book and applies it in his person. And what we must realize is that we are not necessarily made alive by a doctrine written in a book, but by a person who has your name written in his blood. You see the difference? Jesus is a real person. He is our redeemer. He paid our ransom. Jesus resurrects each one of us who are in Christ. How we need to be reminded of this truth today that when you open your Bible, you are looking, hopefully not just for another doctrine to learn, but for a person to live by. Are you more attracted to didactic lecturing or to divine living? Have you fallen in love with the print on the page or the person of Jesus Christ? Now, hear me well, of course, because we certainly love to study our Bibles. We learn and love good doctrine. We want to cut it straight and get it right, but we also want to see and savor Jesus Christ. And my fear is too many people at this institution and too many people at this church are too concerned with the doctrinal teachings only and we forget about it's a love relationship. He's a risen Savior. He meets you where you are and he desires us to know him. And of course, it's through the word that we know him. I get it. I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth a little bit, but I'm just saying there's a balance to understanding. It's not just the words. It's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And maybe Paul gets it better when he says here, Philippians 3, 8 through 11, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from my, uh, or comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, and it depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." This is what Christ is talking about. I am the resurrection from the dead. I am the life. And it's only when you've been resurrected 
in repentance and faith in Christ that you can be made alive and understand and see what Jesus is talking about. This word life that he uses here is the word zoe. It means spiritual life, abundant life, everlasting life, life that goes beyond the grave, the life that conquers, the life that is immortal, the life that is eternal. This life is a gift that will sustain you both now and forever. It's John 1, 4, in him was life, and that was the, the life was the light of men. It's 1 John 5, 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this is the life in his Son. 1 John 5, 12, for whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What we're saying is you must come to the person of Jesus Christ, but you must also, your next blank, you must come believing, you must come believing in life over death. Look at the middle of verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So while Jesus is the resurrection and the life, he doesn't save everyone. There is no universalism in the doctrine of salvation. But there is an invitation of whosoever. Anyone can come. All are invited, but only those who believe can live. And when we think about believing, we think about knowledge, conviction, and commitment. There is a revelation of the knowledge of Christ when God opens the blind eyes of a person to show him the radiance of the glory of his son. You must know who Jesus is. So believing is about knowledge, but there's also conviction. And conviction is not just factual knowledge in your head, but there's also this assent and this affection in your heart. So you know that Jesus is the Christ and you have a deep conviction in your soul which leads to the third aspect of believing. There's knowledge, conviction, and then there's commitment. There's the idea that I will trust and I will follow, not as a work, but as part of Christ conforming you and changing you, you begin to shift in your thinking, which plays out in your actions because you commit your life to him. You trust him with all that you are. And even though you will die physically, through believing, you will live spiritually. And everyone who lives and believes in Jesus will never die. And notice all these verbs that are listed here are in the present tense. They're in the present tense or the present active participle verb form. This means this is an ongoing believing. It's an ongoing living. It's not like you can just say, well, pastor, I prayed the prayer way back when I was in eight years old and therefore I know that I'm saved because I believed back then. No, the belief that saves continues. The grace that saves continues in you today. This very moment, you could say actively, I'm still believing. I don't even know when I was saved. I just know I, I believe. I believe. I, I have the knowledge. I have the conviction. I have the commitment. I'm his. And it doesn't stop when times get tough. And it doesn't go away when doubts come. And this doesn't dissolve when discouragement arises. This kind of believing pushes through all circumstances. This living for Christ continues through every hardship. And this, again, is the whole point and the purpose of the Gospel of John is that you might believe. Remember John 20, 31? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may live or have life in his name. 
So you must come to the person of Christ. You must continue believing in Christ. And third, or C, there in your outline, you must come as an individual, not as a family. Look at verse 26 there. At the end, he says to Martha, do you? Second person singular. Do you believe this? Notice how Jesus' question is vital at the end of the verse. This is a penetrating and a personal question that you cannot avoid. You cannot escape the direct nature of this question. This is the most important of all questions that you could ever be asked. Do you believe this? Notice Jesus doesn't say, does your mom believe? Does your dad believe? Do you have brothers and sisters who believe? Do you have friends who believe? Do you know friends who are Christians? That's not what he asks. Please notice that Jesus does not say, have you become a church member? Have you been baptized? Have you signed off on the doctrinal statement? Do you take communion? Have you read your Bible? Are you obeying your parents? He didn't ask any of these things. He simply asked, do you believe? Please take note that Jesus uses a demonstrative pronoun when he says, do you believe this? Not an ambiguous statement. He doesn't just say have faith in having faith. Just believe in a higher power. No, no, no. Do you believe in this is a reference to the resurrection, to his statement. I am the resurrection and the life that you must have me. Do you believe in this truth? Do you believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ? You must believe in the miracle of life after death through Christ. You must believe in the reality of the resurrection. You can't be unsure about this. You can't be in major doubt and confusion about this. This is not a process. This point in time, when he says, do you believe? He's saying, have you committed? Are you in? Are you born again? Are you someone who is 100% dependent on the person and the Savior, Jesus Christ? Becoming a Christian is not a community decision. Each person must give an account for his life. Each person will stand before God alone. Each individual must come. Each individual must repent. And each individual must have faith in his name. That's why we read in Romans 6, 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So let me ask you this morning, do you believe this? Have you been united with Christ? Have you united yourself with him in his death? Are you dead to your sin? And have you been united with him in his resurrection like his? Have you crossed over from death to life? It only happens by the sovereign grace of God when he calls a man and when he calls a woman, they come running to the goodness and the greatness of a risen Savior and they say, Lord, forgive me for all that I've done. I confess my sin before you. I believe that you are the Christ, the Lord, the risen Savior. Save me. Bring me into your family. Make me a child, a daughter, a son, adopted into the family of God. Do you believe this? He is the only way. Last heading, this is short, but it's powerful. The divinity of this friend we call Jesus. Martha knew Jesus as a friend, but now we're seeing her confession in verse 27. I'll just fill in the blanks. You can read the verses later. But here she says, yes, Lord. Many a time we would say, is there any other word you could possibly put in front of Lord and him still be Lord? You can't say no, Lord. 
You can't say maybe, Lord. You can't say another day, Lord. You must say yes, Lord. And this is an understanding of kurios. Again, the same word that refers to Yahweh and the Septuagint. She submits to Jesus as being the Lord. The second part of her confession is she believes that Jesus is the Christ. Please understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means the anointed one. It means the Messiah in Hebrew, right? This is the one who would save his people from their sins. This would be a risen king and a conquering deliverer. Third, she refers to Jesus as the Son of God. The whole gospel, again, written to prove this single point that we would come to know Jesus as the only begotten Son of the Father. Jesus is the monogenes. He's the only Son. He's the only one with the same substance and the same divinity and the same character as the Father, fully God in all of his attributes and fully man at the same time with the hypostatic union. But what we're seeing here is that Jesus is the Son of God. Fourth, Martha confesses that Jesus is the coming one. Likely a reference to Isaiah 9 and Micah 5, that there would be a child that would be born, that would come, the one that would come and save his people from his, their sins. And so Martha, again, gives us incredible theology of what she understands Jesus to be. This is compelling. This is theologically accurate. This is personal. It's Martha affirming that Jesus is not only her friend, but that Jesus is her Lord, and her confession is one of many of the notable confessions in the Gospel of John. It was John the Baptist who said, look, the Lamb of God who is taking away the sin of the world. It was Andrew who said, we have found the Messiah. It was Philip that said that Jesus was the one whom Moses wrote about in his law and whom the prophets also wrote about. It was Nathaniel that said, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, the King of Israel. It was the Samaritans who said, we know that this is really the Savior of the world. It was Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of everlasting life. This is Martha's confession. Yes, Lord, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the coming one. And my question to you today is, what is your confession? What is your response? Do you have a friend in Jesus? Do you see that he's more than a friend, but that he's also Lord of all as the living Christ, as the one and only Son of God, as the one who is coming into the world and who is coming back again? Do you know Jesus as the resurrection and the life? These last take-home points here, do you find more consolation in the products of this world or in the promises of Christ? We could also say in the person of Christ. That's part of the sermon's point, right? It's the promise that Christ makes. I am the resurrection and the life, and we find that promise in his own person. Don't look for consolation mainly in secondary, tertiary, externals. Look for your consolation to come through Christ. Number two, is your faith true and completely trusting in the power of Christ even when you don't fully understand? Martha's like, Lord, where were you? I wish you'd have been here, but even now, even now, I know that anything you ask, God will grant to you. We need a little bit more of that even now in our life. Our faith is real, but it's really dependent and trusting in the power that even now Christ is intervening. Third, how does the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life change the way you live today 
and I would say every day, right? This is not just a resurrection morn message. It's not just an Easter sermon. Christianity is every day we believe in the resurrection and the life who changed us, who's a person that allows us to walk with him through the ups and downs of life and to experience the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you know him today? And are you walking with him in your life? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be so encouraged by the words of Christ telling us here that he is the resurrection and the life. Thank you for the reminder that even though life is tough and sometimes we don't understand why or what, we can say just as Martha did, but even now, Lord, even now at this moment, in the midst of my hurt, my pain, my heartache, even now, Lord, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will grant to you. God, would you help us to see sometimes the differences between the theology that we believe and the application to our daily circumstance. Enlighten us. Show us the person and work of Jesus Christ. Change us. Give us a, a fire and a passion to walk as individuals who've been made alive in Christ. Thank you that we're not like that dead corpse. That We've been given life and life eternally, and so help us to share that life and that love with others. Help us to be encouraged this week that you're greater than our problems and that you're greater than our trials and that you are greater than death. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.